Hello, 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 and welcome to the Cells and Circuits podcast. I am your host, Chibeze Anakor, and on the very first episode of our Industry Spotlight series, we'll be talking with Justin from Paratope about the inspirations and representation, as well as other things about his company's game, Sky Climbers. So sit back and relax as we shine an industry spotlight on Sky Climbers. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Cells and Circuits podcast, your place for tunes, tech, and where both intersect. I'm your host, Chibeze Anakor, and this is the first episode in our Industry Spotlight series. And for this episode, we have Justin from Paratope, who's going to be talking about his game, Sky Climbers, which is currently a successful Kickstarter campaign that still has a few days left to go in the campaign. So you can go ahead and support it right now. But Justin, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Jubeze. I can't wait to get into it. Awesome. I can't wait to get into it either. Uh, and so with that being said, what is Sky Climbers for those watching or listening who don't know? Sky Climbers is a multiplayer city building action RPG. And if you were to look at those elements, you might think at a surface level that they may not go well together. But what we've done is created a very unique experience where you're not only playing in a third-person action experience, but you are also contributing with other players to a civilization-type game, which is played through a very long period of time and across a procedurally generated world. And because we have built so many robust world systems, like uh, Sentius, our monsters that are elemental, similar to Pokemon, uh, the class system, we have five classes now, the engineer, the warg, the paladin, the ranger, and the mage. And then we also have a very robust uh, building system and survival system where you can cut every tree, mine every stone, build wherever you want in a procedural world. And what this allows for is a great deal of player choice. So people are going to be able to create their own servers, their own custom game modes, they're going to be able to locally host the game. So we see a really bright future for Sky Climbers as not only a game, but also a platform for people to promote their own custom game content that they're making, as well as just the pure thrill of exploring a procedural world similar to what you would see with like Minecraft or No Man's Sky. So that's Sky Climbers in a nutshell, and I'd, I'd be happy to get into any more specific uh, details about the game or any of the game systems. Awesome. And I would... For this section, I would like to just talk about the um, monster taming aspect because that is something that's you know, based off of Pokemon and Digimon and all of and all of those uh, monster taming uh, franchises. So, um, what lessons have you learned from? the Pokemon games over the years and how could you improve on that concept? 
Excellent question. I mean, I think what's happening right now is you're seeing a lot of original Pokemon fans who have grown up with the series have watched other brands like Zelda mature, where you have Breath of the Wild, which is a very dramatic and intense game with a lot of depth to it and a lot of uh, robust engine features like the open world systems, the climbing systems, the combat systems, the AI systems. It's a very complex game compared to its last entry before that. Whereas the Pokemon games have stagnated to the degree where new entries uh, don't usually provide any new mechanics, and uh, they certainly don't provide uh, a new uh, format, if you will. And that's why when we looked at the monster taming subgenre, we knew that there would be a great opportunity, a ripe opportunity to disrupt it and introduce a, an alternative that would be more engaging. And uh, one of the ways that we went about doing that was making that the Sentius were, in our case, the, the monsters, the Sentius, right. not only elemental, but they were also linked to your dynasty in many cases. So we, we essentially took every animal that would have been in the game, and rather than just having a deer, we now have stagma, a deer that also has the element magma. Or, for example... Instead of having just a bison, we now have Magmaton, which is a bison that has the element Terra and the element Magma. And this allows the design to really flourish, and it also makes it so that when we animate the characters for combat, they can have elemental uh, attacks and defensive moves. So overall, shifting from an open-world survival game with animals to an open-world monster tamer with monsters is instantly more interesting. And it's also much more engaging as a player because every new monster now can evolve. It can also possess new abilities or traits. So I think that, and I've said this before, I do think that the monster taming trend will continue and we will see more and more RPGs adopt elemental monster taming or at least monster taming to the degree that you can capture them and evolve them or something like that because uh, there's no comparison to a Pokemon or the random animals in Batwa. I mean, the random animals in Breath of the Wild are very nice to look at and cool, but if you were, to able, if you were able to tame every monster in Zelda, uh, that would be more like what we have, where it's this massive open-world sandbox, but there's, which you can also tame the monsters. So I think that with the release of Pokemon Legends Arceus, we're going to see a lot of people draw comparisons from our game. And we've already seen this on Twitter. It's kind of funny. We've seen people retweeting our game and saying, like, look, it's the new Arceus game. So I think what's going to happen is people are going to look at Arceus. They're going to look at our game. And, and look at our game is almost like, okay, it can be done. You can have uh, full open world. You can have full dynamic climbing. You can have mounting. And uh, you can have dynamic real-time taming, which is what we have. We use the Sentius Gauntlet. You're actually taming them in real time. So it is possible to do that. And I think that once they prove that uh, Legends will become a, a staple, every year there'll be a new Legends game. And uh, for us, I think we are going to help set a standard for the next generation of Monster Tamers because the current generation of Monster Tamers are essentially Pokemon and Pokemon clones. And Pokemon right. clones, Nexomon, Temtem, I mean, they follow the exact same formula. You get into a battle, it's... Uh, time-based or turn-based, and then the battle ends, and you go back to your, your, you know, your, your character, and you walk around. They're all clones, whereas we're actually providing a completely new take, where not only can you tame the monsters and and evolve them and breed them and uh, level them up and get new moves, but you can also play as a character with a class and fight alongside them. So I, I do think that overall it was a very natural decision for us to make. 
And the last piece of it being of the elements is that every element is linked to a dynasty. Your preference being the Rakuhito is important, not just because you connect with them culturally, but also you, you probably like the Terra element. It probably fires you up to see the big uh, T-Rex that has uh, a bunch of stones and, and, um, and rock figures coming out of it. It's just kind of the vibe that you get with that dynasty. So I, I think, I, I, you know, I do, I do think that also the, the recycling that you see in, in AAA and even in indie games and, and, and in other, where a, a trend is copied and repeated, it does work to a degree, but there has to be iteration. There has to be improvement because at the end of the day, if I'm a consumer and I'm looking at Temtem or Pokemon, the only reason I want to play Temtem is because it has multiplayer and MMO features. Other than that, there's literally no reason to ever pick it up. You can just play Pokemon. Or if you're on Steam, let's say you're a PC player, you can play on Steam with Temtem. Okay, that's a little different. But for us, we have to be, because of all the competition and all the games that are coming out, we, you have to be able to look at our game, look at Breath of the Wild, and say, eh, I'm not going to play Breath of the Wild. I'm going to play, I'm going to play Sky Climbers. Or you have to be like looking at Pokemon and be like, uh, I want to play, I want to play Legends Arceus or Pokemon or, or, or Sky Climbers. We need to be different enough that you say Sky Climbers. And then if you play Pokemon, it's for a different reason. Or it's because uh, you want to get, uh, let's say, the fulfillment of like the, the Switch ecosystem. I don't know. We're going to be on Switch as well. So maybe that's not right. the best answer. But uh, that's generally the take on the monster taming element that I would say. That's awesome stuff. And. I want to switch gears a little bit to the inspirations in terms of animation. So in one of your Twitch streams, you had said that Zoids, the popular toyetic anime that aired on Cartoon Network in the early 2000s, was an inspiration for Sky Climbers and some of the monsters in the game. So what other media, it could be TV shows, movies, comics, video games, inspired Sky Climbers outside of Pokemon and Zoids? Could you share that? Oh, I'd love to. Uh, so with, also with Zoids, it's kind of funny because really what, what I had meant when I had said that was the Zoid toys. But after you pointed that out on Twitter, I actually looked into the anime Perhaps you, someone put it out on Twitter. I looked in the anime, and the anime is also really awesome. But I would say for us, the biggest world inspirations would be Avatar, the movie, uh, the one from James Cameron. Specifically, right. the, the exotic creatures that are in that, as well as the scale. So the big thing with our game that people sometimes latch onto, really important for us, is scale. Everything's giant. The world is infinite. It's huge. And, and the buildings are, are, are gargantuan. The monsters are huge. So everything is just enormous. And there's a lot. There's three-point scale. So and I'm going a little bit of a rant here. I'm sorry about that. But essentially, okay. essentially you have three-point scale where like, you look at a human, and then you look at the newest monster, that T-Rex type thing, and then that gets dwarfed by the environment itself. And that's why when you look at a lot of the screenshots, you kind of see into the into the game because you're usually looking, when I take screenshots, I usually show like a character, then I show a building and then I show the world. Or I show the character, then I show a monster, then I show the world. And you look and you're like, okay, this game is insanely massive. So Avatar did that where you had the Navi who were these huge people, they were set, you know, like eight feet tall, 
And then you also had them dwarfed by the giant machines that the humans made, but also by the giant monsters that lived in the world. So right. the world building of Avatar was really important for us fundamentally. And then from there, I think that the, the tribal nations and elemental regions uh, heavily came from both Tejas and my own's real adornment for uh, the Avatar The Last Airbender, where you will you'll see very, people will say, oh, look at Zuko, because he's got the, the hair, you know, the pony. <laughs> or, yeah. uh, you know, or people will, will call Ikaru uh, Aang. So, yeah. and, and that's something that is undeniable. We, we, we consider that, and many consider that to be, I think, uh, the greatest American-made anime ever or something like that. I mean, it's a fantastic... It is. You know. It is so, a fantastic franchise. Yeah, it's it's almost like a golden franchise. They can do. They, they almost like it's just like a perfect. It's like a perfect uh, set of, of stories and and and, uh, and images, and 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 the whole world itself is very pristine in how well they are able to maintain a a, a, sen a level headed sense while also being very fantastical. So I guess that's where it brings me to the last inspiration for the world. Uh, at least personally, was Game of Thrones, or more properly notated, the uh, A Song of Ice and Fire books. I read all the books, and I'm a real geek with Game of Thrones, so I think that the different houses of Game of Thrones, you can imagine a dynasty is a mix of a house from Game of Thrones, as well as a, uh, a, a tribe in, in The Last Airbender. It's like putting those together. Because right. you, have the, you have the feudalistic relationship and economy that you would have from the song of ice and fire and you have the dragons in the medieval time period but then you also have the elemental connection that is found in avatar the last airbender so that's kind of how the world came together and, and in terms of visual style uh, the, our benchmark has been since we began developing the game it has been breath of the wild because the the semi-realistic cel-shaded anime the style that they went with has set the standard for any anime-themed game that has come out since then. And if you look at other games like uh, Grand Saga, or actually not Grand Saga, another great example, uh, Blue Protocol, fantastic-looking game. And uh, that would, though, I would say Blue Protocol is probably our, like, if we look at that game, we're like, okay, we need to look that good to compete. So right. visual style, we, we do look heavily at some JRPGs or Korean RPGs, and also uh, Breath of the Wild. And we're very, string, very, very stingy about that. And also, like, we'll go to the extent of using pipelines that are more um, mechanically or, or technically intensive just to get that anime look. Like, for the, the story trailer, there were some explosions. And uh, they, didn't, they weren't the smoothest of explosions. And some people pointed out that they looked like they needed some work. But the reason that we chose those lower frame rate mesh-based animations was so that we could get a true anime look with the frames of the animation itself. So we right. take that very seriously. Awesome. That's awesome. Um, and I'm glad that you mentioned Avatar The Last Airbender because last week Viacom CBS announced that Avatar Studios is going to be forming. So there's going to be a huge franchise around it with mm. theatrical movies and TV shows around mm. that. So I want to... Oh, I think... I, well, go ahead. I Actually, I, I kind of feel like I'm, I'm latching onto what you're going to get to. I, I'd like to hear. Um, so 
I wanted to um, mention um, what, or I guess, what inspirations or what, uh, or what are the inspirations from the uh, Sentius or what Sentius have been inspired by Avatar? Because you have monsters like, you know, Appa in uh, The Last Airbender, and then you have, um, and then you have Korra's pet um, (laughs) um, in The Legend of Korra. So I'm curious as to um, what um, Sentius inspirations um, you've drawn from that particular franchise. Good question. So from the Avatar universe, I would say we definitely borrowed the Appa de, Appa's general design and, and proportion. But I think in, in in overall looking at that universe, what we took from that universe is the anatomical complexity. The animals of the last airbender are very strange and they're sometimes taking two animals and putting them together, but they anatomically look very realistic even though they're very fantastical and elemental. So like all you could also look at the rhino lizard things that the, uh, that the, the, the fire nation will ride. Right. They're, they're, they're anatomically accurate, even though they're fictional. So if you look at all of our monsters that I make, they're always representative of an anatomical source, unless they're like a robot or something, you know, they might be a little fantastical, but overall we don't have, you know, a chandelier sentius. Everything is based off of an animal, and the reason for that is that prior to the inception of the game's primary uh, world events, the idea is that these are essentially more like regular animals, and they become more um, elaborate in their ability to possess elements and whatnot after intervention from another party, which I won't disclose entirely so that the, the story can unravel, but that's the idea for us behind the Sentius, because... We've always found that, well, first of all, in terms of animation, using a very realistic animation is easier to format for the Sentius. So, like, if we were to animate something extravagant or abstract, like a chandelier, like the chandelier Pokemon, that would require very meticulous and specific animation to look good. Whereas if we take right. a, a horse and we turn it into Zabura, which is a modified horse, it can use a horse animation, but it can be very exotic looking. So right. it's, a technical, it's a technical reason, a preference, and then also an artistic reason. Awesome. That's fantastic. Um, and I wanted to know what cartoons and anime have you watched recently? And have they influenced Sky Climbers at all? Um, so, um, could you please share? Oh, I would say definitely. The last anime series that I watched was Castlevania. That was quite, that was like almost a year ago, but I've yeah. watched some, mo- I've watched some movies since then. Castlevania is a big inspiration for the Draconians. Uh, I think that, that in general, sense. yeah, I, I think, I think in general that the Castlevania, like the, the prince, uh, the vampire's son, he, he just screams Draconian. He's got that long white hair. He's very tall and thin. He, he has that long sword. He just screams Draconian. So I think that that 
uh, hit me pretty pretty hard. Also, the architecture in Castlevania is very intense, like the Gothic epic Gothic cathedrals and the yeah. old. You can also imagine like an old rundown medieval city. So it just screams draconian. Um, it, and I think other than that, the Studio Ghibli films are like something that I'll come back to and watch from time to time just to refresh what it means to be like an amazing anime. So like uh, Princess Mononoke, I watched yeah. not that long ago. I rewatched that. And then I watched um, uh, Spirited Away. And so I, I, I've exposed myself to it as someone who personally is not a big movie or TV watcher. Uh, I would say that I, in, in fact, probably have read more fiction than I have watched fiction. And uh, I used to read a lot in my younger years, a lot of fiction. I don't read or consume media as much anymore. Uh, instead, what I have to do, since we have to also make the game, uh, is I, as I composite like thousands of images, and uh, I, whenever I see something online that really sparks my interest, if it's an artist or it's an anime or it's a game, I just put it into a, this giant reference board and I organize all of them so that I can have a picture of what I want the game to be, since I'm the artist. And then Tejas also, my co-founder, will review it and we'll put together what images he likes, which ones I like, and then if he sees a show that he really likes, he'll show me a clip of it and vice versa. So it's a, it's a collaborative effort, but on my end, I would say that uh, specifically what moved me also recently was seeing the, uh, what was it called? So I think it was in Princess Mononoke, the, the great war that they have. They have this epic war, and there's uh, so many fantastic events happening at the same time, and there's controversy, and there's betrayal, and there's also a very robust sense of danger, like a general end-of-the-world type of scenario. Right. And uh, all of that's going on, but you have these great epic heroes who have their monsters, and they're all fighting, but they're also in a deep conflict, and the world is very massive and wild. So I think that Princess Mononoke is probably like a great uh, martyr for what we want the the story uh, intensity to be. Like the, the like the the level of intensity in Princess Mononoke is very high. It's very intense and it's very sad at times when characters might die or something. Right. So I think we want, we want to bring that level of realism and intenseness to an anime, which is uh, I would say less. I mean you you. Might be uh, you sound like more of an anime aficionado than myself, so I'm going to default to you. But would you say that anime definitely, or even media and film in general, will lean towards happy or fun more than it leads towards like a somber and atmospheric tone? I would say so. Um, I definitely think that with the rise of uh, dystopian and post-apocalyptic settings in anime and cartoons and just media in general um there's definitely more of a somber tone in terms of in terms of setting and um the expressions of characters and just the worlds in general um they've just become more somber over time yeah that's interesting do you say that I saw another anime recently, which was really good. It was the, I can't remember the name of it. It was with the Orphanage. Did you see it on Netflix? Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, orphanage. I have to. There's like a, there's a small orphanage and uh, I can't remember the name of it right now, but there's all these little kids who are, who are at this uh, nursery home 
and it has a very scary, almost somber vibe, very intense. And that Promise was a, Neverland. Sorry. Yes. Sorry. Yes. Sorry. Love <laughs> that. Interrupt you. Um, oh, yeah. love that. I can't wait to see the uh, season two of that. And that's not really related to the game, but I mean, it was beautifully animated, beautifully uh, scored. The music was fantastic. And also, I think that in terms of the world, the music for the Studio Ghibli films is just fantastic. So, and that's where a lot of Breath of the Wild's music and tone came from, was like Princess Mononoke. So, also Skyrim. Skyrim was quoted as a big influence for Breath of the Wild. So when we crafted, or when I crafted the music, and um, when Tatus and I were look, listening to other games, soundtracks, trying to determine what kind of vibe we wanted, we kept coming back to Breath of the Wild, Studio Ghibli, Skyrim. They're very ambient. They can almost go on forever. Like, if you listen to our streams, I'll play one track for seven hours. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, I don't get sick of it. And I ask you guys, and usually no one's really sick of it, so I just leave it on for seven hours. Um, and the reason for that is the music is meant to be very uh, meditative and atmospheric. So that when you're playing the game, you really get lost and you, you forget you're playing a game and you're just in it. And that, I think, comes a lot also, sorry for the side rant, that we did VR development for many years. And the game began as a VR project. So I think the immersion level in terms of graphics is important, but sound is almost equally, if not more important. Because if you have bad sound, your graphics are hard, or just don't mean anything. Right. I mean, imagine... Imagine if you just put the wrong sounds in the game, like you put farting noises or something. I mean, you couldn't play the game. It would be useless. But, but you, can, you can take very good sound design and put it with, like, okay graphics, and it will have a big impact, which is interesting. Right. Because we're very audio-driven. We, as, as creatures, we listen. Um, in fact, most people probably, and myself included, listen more than we speak. Right. So... We, and, and we listen constantly. Even when we're with our eyes closed, we're still listening. So our attunement to sound is, 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 is equal to visual imperfection. And if not, it's even more pronounced. So I think the soundscape, like I was saying, is... Uh, well, I'll repeat myself. I'll, I'll, I'll repeat myself. Um, that's okay. Um, that's all right. Uh, but uh, I think that... Pretty much um, does it for the inspiration section. Up next, we'll get into the representation in Sky Climbers. Then after that, we'll get into some general questions about the game itself. The Cells and Circuits podcast will be right back. This episode is sponsored by Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. First, it's free. So, I mean, doesn't get any cheaper than that. Second, there are creation tools that will allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. I'm editing this podcast from a Chromebook using the web, so it's pretty easy to do. Um, If I can do it, you can certainly do it. Third, Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and so many more services. So you don't have to go to each individual podcast service and distribute it yourself. 
it automatically does that for you. So that's pretty awesome. Fourth, you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. So, I mean, that's a pretty good way to make some money. Um, And then last but not least, it's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So download the free Anchor app for iOS or Android or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M to get started or download the app for iOS or Android today. Are you a small business looking for a financial platform to do business on? Check out Payment, the first black-owned financial platform where you can do things like sending invoices, accepting payments, and more features will be added in the future. If you watch Trigger Warning with Killer Mike on Netflix, you know that money stays within the black community for an average of six hours compared to the days and sometimes weeks that other communities get. So if you want to bring or keep money in the black community, join Payment, that's P-E-Y-M-Y-N-T, at the affiliate link in the show notes today. Hey, Cells and Circuits listeners. Want to support the show without having to buy any merch? Well, you can do that by buying us a coffee. All it takes is just one U.S. dollar to help support the show. So click the link in the show notes or go to ko-fi.com slash circuits to help make the Cells and Circuits podcast a better show for you. And so um, I want to switch gears into the representation section of the interview. So, so the first question, um, in Sky Climbers, there are three dynasties that players can base their characters from. And... Um, as you mentioned, also the Sentius um, will or can also be from a specific dynasty. Um, so, could you tell us what those dynasties or what those dynasties are and who they're based off of? Sure thing. So, we have three historic dynasties in the current pre-alpha, and what was advertised in the Kickstarter, and also all of our gameplay exists in those three dynasties this time. So, the Draconians were the first dynasty we developed for, for this vision of the game. We actually had developed uh, what became the Foryoku dynasty first, but, but, but that was before we had recognized the term dynasty. And, and, and so when we did make the Draconian dynasty, our, our strongest influences were Northern Europe, Vikings, but more importantly, knights and royalty. So you could think a song of ice and fire. That's the Draconians. I mean, uh, the Starks, the, the, the Lannisters, really even more the Lannisters than the Starks. Uh, they're a noble, proud race, and uh, they inhabit Draconia. They possess the element magma, and they feature a, a lot of really elaborate castles and keeps, as well as uh, ships, airships and seaships, mostly seaships. Uh, they have some like uh, Zeppelin-type airships. 
And that's essentially the Draconian dynasty. They also have a fair amount of raptors and dragons. And the fauna is based off of megafauna from modern Europe and ancient Europe. So that means like uh, the Megalosaurus, which is the, the elk with the giant horns. So we, we, we do is we take past and present versions of every dynasty's historical origin. So if it's Northern Europe, we take Northern Europe 500 million years ago, 500,000 years ago, today. And then we think about the future as well. We make up some you know, unique or cross-planetary or cross-continental uh, migration. So an animal that might be found in Africa, maybe it went a little bit north and it made it to Europe. So we kind of play those kinds of uh, modulations on the, re the real world. But when it comes to uh, the, the next dynasty for Yoku, we chose ancient Japan and China. So they feature not only the, the, the great uh, cloud forest of China, which is what Avatar was based off of, the, the movie, where you have the floating islands and all the, the, the dense rainforests. We have those biomes, and then we also have floating islands. And that's partially because they possess the element air. And uh, we decided to choose this element for this race because it's supposed to be very calm and also uh, very, very powerful. So they're a reserve race, and we chose historically uh, some Mongol inspiration in terms of like the archers and the horseback, or in our case, riding on a pterodactyl, which is the pterodos, sentius. Uh, also, the ancient historic ja uh, Japanese samurais for some of the classes, and, and specifically the, the terrain of Japan, like Mount Fuji and the Great Meadows of Japan. So there are a vast uh, array of different influences that come from China and Japan, Buddhist monks, uh, uh, sorry, Shaolin monks. Right. So, and that's where I think the avatar thing, what I like to say to people is if you take, a, uh, if you take the element wind, yes, we did borrow that from uh, avatar, but if you just were to take the stylistic representation of the wind and apply it to Shaolin monks, you're going to get something that looks kind of like Aang. I mean, it's not that far from. Um, yeah. In our case, we did definitely pay homage to Aang, that's for sure. But we haven't literally copied any of the specific designs, so I don't think we've infringed any copyright. Uh, to, to move on to the next, and, and the most relevant to this discussion, since you are Team Rakuhito, is Rakuhito. And the Rakuhito. And the Rakuhito are based off of ancient Africa. So one of the reasons that we wanted to do dynasties was because we knew that there are a lot of underrepresented cultures in the world. If you take, for example, ancient Africa, I can't name a single game from a AAA or AA company that's come out in the last five, ten years that has featured at the forefront, other than, let's say, some Marvel Wakanda game, which I haven't seen. Uh, you have not seen this underrepresented population in the front of popular culture. And, and the, really the only example that we have in all media is Wakanda, which is I mean, it's pretty cool. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you that. It's pretty cool. But come on, I, I want to see some more. Because right. when you look at in Africa, I mean, not only do you have the, the, the most epic megafauna, the rhinoceros, the elephant, the giraffe, three animals we've already, we've included two of them already as Cynthia's, and also yeah. most most of the really awesome ancient dinosaurs, like uh, the huge sauropods, a lot of them came from Africa, which was previously a different location in the world. But a lot of great, you know, a lot of great dinosaurs historically came from Africa, some from North America as well. So uh, we we, we looked at it as just such a ripe opportunity, 
And uh, it seems to have gone well because people recognize it, not only people like yourself who can personally connect with it, but other people who just happen to like Wakanda or anything that has to do with ancient uh, Africa, they're like, whoa, this is cool. I've never seen this before. So it's partially driven by a stylistic choice. We, we, we chose uh, Africa for the Rakuhito because we knew we wanted the Terra element to be in Africa because Africa features a lot of great uh, rocky terrain where the Rakuhito would just make a lot of sense. But then on top of that, uh, when you look at the, the, the colors, even for the Terra, uh, you see those those colors and that color palette represented well in uh, in African culture. Uh, some of the even the, the golds and the contrast of, of the darker skin with the gold uh, ornate jewelry, or, or even the architecture being very ornate but also exotic uh, in these desert biomes. So the Rakuhito ended up becoming, I would say, the most uh, unique in terms of popular culture. But to us, it's very it's very same. Each one has an element and a cultural historical uh, origin. That's it. And we don't want to prioritize any over the other. That's why we have Dynasty Week 2, which is Rekohito. But we plan to always change which dynasty is being featured so that everyone gets represented. Right. And since it's Rokuhito Dynasty Week, gang gang. Um, <laughs> sorry. I had to. No, please. I, um, it's great. <laughs> I had to um, make this particular section um, around the Rokuhito dynasty. And so I have, I have to ask, how deeply will the, or I shouldn't say that, um, what kinds of research um, have you done um, in trying to capture or to accurately portray um, the African continent in Sky Climbers? Excellent question. So whenever we make a dynasty, the first step is analyzing the historic and uh, real-world properties of that uh, equivalent. So like in the case of the Draconians, we not only looked at historical images of what uh, the the, the, the villages would look like, and I, I even watched a couple of very long documentaries where people would reconstruct uh, medieval architecture, and you would see how the, the stones were laid and whatnot. So we did the same for uh, Rakuhito, and particularly with the music, I was just making the music last night and today, and what I found when I was listening to the music is I, I didn't really know what true African traditional music sounded like. And when I went to look online, I didn't find very much. So uh, I actually had to end up going to some historical documents and looking at what instruments they actually had at their disposal. And it turns out that most instruments during the African tribal musical, kind of their classical musical period, were percussive. So a lot of drums. And then you had some mallet instruments like uh, the xylophone. And, yeah. But mostly vocal chants and, and percussion, almost entirely. And what I also found fascinating as someone who uh, went to music school and studied music is that uh, they, had a, they have a very robust understanding of rhythm prior to most other world origins. So, for example, a lot of polyrhythms where you have two rhythms happening at the same time, it would sound something kind of like this where you have bum, 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 and you have two rhythms backbeat. And it's, a very, it's almost uncomfortable, but it's something that I love. And, uh, sorry, a little bit of a side tangent, 
But the point being that we had to go and listen, or I personally had to go and listen as a composer to, you know, an hour or more of just tribal music and, and listening to the rhythms, the harmonies, and, and, and the actual vocal inflections. I can then take that and interpret into our sound, which is very cinematic. And that's, I guess, the best way to describe how every dynasty gets integrated into the world is that we take a, a, a real thing, like we take uh, ancient African um, culture and we make it mystical. We add a level of cinematic and, and, and animated flair that doesn't exist in the real world. So right. like also with the clothing, you'll see this week, we will show the Rakuhito clothing. We've seen some of the armor for the, the Zaburo riders, but uh, I looked and I reviewed historical documents as well as modern accounts of what local people in communities that still follow tribal traditions would wear. And uh, it's very exotic, but that's what we put into the game. Uh, we put into the game the exotic uh, jewelry that they wear. We put into the game the, uh, the specific way that they wear their clothing in some sort of a poncho format with the, with the, with the shirts. And uh, I, I don't recall the exact name, but then there are also very ornate uh, styles of clothing for ancient Africa, which is almost, it's almost like a button down I'm forgetting the exact name, but it's a very ornate, almost suit-like looking feature, which we're also going to have in the game. So it comes partially from historical documents and, uh, and, and modern day accounts, but then we also do look to what have other animes or um, games or movies, in this case, we basically just have Wakanda, but we look at what have other uh, artists or, or publishers or developers uh, or writers done with this style and enhanced it. So that's kind of the process. It's looking at the real world, adding our flair, and then looking at what other people have done to create a uh, an iteration of this real thing. Or that's excellent, and um, I genuinely can't wait to be able to uh, just see what all of the Rokuhito dynasty um, and what it has to offer the game because um, from what it sounds, it's really exciting. And um, with more African-based um, media coming in, like, for example, um, I covered on the podcast before um, Disney and Kugali Media, a Pan-African company, are collaborating on an animated series for Disney Plus called Iwaju, um, mm -hmm. which is an Afrofuturistic animated series, as well as Crunchyroll um, had just recently announced an anime um, with Idris Elba and his wife called Dantai, which is also going to be um, an Afrofuturistic series. So I want to ask, as more and more um, Afrofuturist or African-based entertainment comes out, will we see more of that being reflected in the Rokuhito dynasty in the game? I am very excited to hear about those two things you just mentioned because you said two words that got my interest afrofuturism there's something about uh, sorry another tangent but there's something about 
an ancient African society that also has ornate technology from the future that's very interesting. I think for any society it makes sense, but uh, rather for any society it's, it's interesting to think about, but particularly the African society I think has a certain look and intensity to it. I would say that we're going to look at any other iteration of this type of a, of, of, of a, of a novelty or in the case of of us, a dynasty, and look to it as, as, as a source of inspiration, yes. I mean, we do also want to be confident in our design so that we don't see something else say, oh, well, ours isn't, isn't that, so maybe we're going to change it. We want to be confident in our design, but we also want to remain uh, relative, re relevant and competitive with other IP that's taking upon this similar uh, inspiration. Awesome. Um, and, our, like I said, I... Um, I'm just very excited, um, and and I want to switch gears a little bit, um, and I should say, how deeply will the character customization, and I think you, you touched on this a little bit, um, but how deeply will it incorporate um, African uh, diaspora-based features like you know, hair, because we definitely um, value our hairstyles, um, but also um, just like facial features and clothing as well. Um, so did you want to touch on that a little bit? Oh, certainly. So every dynasty is going to have a unique, a unique character creation window. So when you make a character, it's not like you just make a character and you make it whatever you want and you pick your dynasty. You pick your dynasty first, then you have a set amount of, of customization within that dynasty. So like if you pick Rockohito, you can't make yourself have yellow, yellow, white skin. You're right. stuck with, the, you're stuck with the darker skin. You can have different tones of it. We're gonna have four, probably three or four tones of that darker skin, but we want you to be immersed and actually play as that role as that dynasty. So you have to pick their hair as well. And they have very specific hair. That's more representative of, how African people style their hair. So right. you you have some customization. I think also piercings would be very interesting. We don't have them currently, but large nose piercings or big ear piercings, gauges similar to those found in African cultures would be very interesting. Uh, clothing will be specific to African cultures. So you almost have like a different character creation process. Well, not almost, you, you literally have it. You're going to have a different character creation process for every dynasty. And not every dynasty is going to have the same options. Like the Draconians aren't going to have the option to have big ear gauges. Right. Okay. Yeah. That, or I'm glad that was cleared up because that was one of the biggest questions that I had. Um, and at the time of this recording, um, your, um, your game's Kickstarter has exceeded 250,000 US dollars. So, Congratulations on meeting that stretch goal. Um, and since you've met that stretch goal, um, there's going to be another dynasty added. Um, do you care to share the real world origin of that dynasty or, um, or are you holding that in for you know, a future announcement? Uh, that is something we can certainly share with you, but the only thing is we are looking at three dynasties to choose from. Koshimo, based on the, the frost element. 
uh, Mazukai based off the Gaia element and Akumizu based off the Aqua element. So we have yet to decide which one will be chosen, but from the 2,000, almost 500 votes that we have so far in a day, it looks like Koshimo is going to win. And Koshimo is the Frost Dynasty, which is going to be based partially off of Inuit peoples from uh, northern Antarctica, and also probably some... Uh, actually, I won't say exactly, but I guess the idea is that it's it's a mix. It's A lot of our dynasties are mixed. Like the Rakuhito dynasty isn't just ancient Africa. It's also a futuristic world. Right. Uh, that does you can't even really describe. It's almost too futuristic to describe. Uh, so you have them, but then you also have like uh, Draconians. They're not just uh, pretty boy, uh, you know, high princes. They're also rugged warriors and Vikings. So right. I, I think in the case of the Koshimo, it's going to be a mix of things, including the Inuit peoples. Interesting. Um... And with other cultures starting to see more representation in media, like how the Crunchyroll original Onyx Equinox had recently portrayed uh, Mesoamerican mm. culture, so like the Aztecs and the Mayans and the Incas, um, will there be more or additional opportunities to add those kinds of uh, representation in the game. Yes, that is a huge incentive for us to create new dynasties. And of the nine elements, there are a, there is a single dynasty associated with each of the nine elements. Now, we try not to get people excited about that, to think that they're going to play nine different dynasties, because as of now, two of them are non-playable, the Shoi and the Void, who are the kind of eternal conflict. They're almost like factions, but they're also dynasties. So we have three ripe opportunities, Koshimo, Akumizu, and Mazukai. And right off the bat, uh, Koshimo being the Inuit peoples who are very rarely represented. The Akumizu peoples will probably be based off partially Atlantis and uh, other fictional universes that are underwater. And then lastly, the Mazukai will be mi mixed off of uh, uh, probably uh, wood elves from fantasy, high fantasy, as well as uh, some other... Uh, woods-faring cultures, perhaps Native Americans. We've looked at Native American peoples. So every dynasty that we add is going to have a new cultural origin, and we are not copying ourselves at six. I mean, six is what we're going to have for full re like initial release. But as we've said many times, we want to develop the game for 5, 10, 15 years and never do paid DLC and just deploy updates and, and have a wider and wider player base. So in that case... We, we will inevitably add more dynasties and more elements. Awesome. That's awesome. I cannot wait to play this game long term. Um, but that's going to do it for the representation section of this interview. Up next, we'll get into some general questions about Sky Climbers. The Cells and Circuits podcast will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast. It provides podcasters with a flat rate for ad space, so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. 
That's podgo.co at P-O-D-G-O dot C-O. And be sure to add the Cells and Circuits podcast in the How Did You Hear About Podgo section of the application, which really helps out the show. Hey, Cells and Circuits listeners. Did you know that we now have a merch store? It's true. In partnership with Bonfire, we've launched the Cells and Circuits shop where you can find t-shirts, hoodies, face masks, and more. So hit the link in the show notes to visit the Cells and Circuits shop and start getting your merch today. It really does help out the show. Thanks for your support. And now, back to the show. So, um, last but not least, um, I know I have... um, a limited amount of time with you. So I want to get into the other questions that I had um, in terms of the game. So um, what were the challenges in launching a Kickstarter campaign versus the regular developer publisher relationships that are currently found in the majority of the gaming landscape? Fantastic question. It's very simple. Other games have cheated the system, gone to Kickstarter, not delivered products to their customers, and made it so that everyone has a bad taste in their mouth. So bringing the game to Kickstarter not only meant that we had to self-fund the entire project for four years, which was a living hell at many times, but we also had to convince people that they should pledge to our game despite being burnt by Chronicles of Illyria, Crowfall, Star Citizen, five other games. So we had to, and we still have to, convince people that we can do it. So I, I think that at the end of the day, the most difficult thing about doing the Kickstarter was proving people that Kickstarter isn't a scam. Right. Yeah, that's um, definitely something that is an uphill battle because um, as you mentioned in um, I believe it was the gaming advocates um, interview that uh, PC gamers are more um, are more skeptical um, than like console players because console players are or yeah console players are more you know, hungry for games and more open to new ideas. Um, and so most Kickstarters usually target PC players. And with so many of them being, um, you know, just canceled, I could, I could definitely see why um, they'd be a bit more hesitant. Um, and so how or what are you doing to kind of combat that? Good question. So in order to combat this, our only tool or weapon is gameplay. Because you can't deny gameplay. And we've already released, this weekend we put out three gameplay videos. We've got another gameplay video coming out later this week. And actually two more coming out later this week. And once we get a couple of more days into development, a couple of more weeks, we're going to have gameplay every day. We're going to have streams every day. So when the game is being shown like the way that we show it which is every day new screenshots every day we put out new content how can you deny that we have a viable game and not only a viable game but we also have uh 
the manpower with just two people to put out content every day and meet all of our goals. So it's, it's a relatively simple answer. Just show them gameplay and constant updates. But uh, it doesn't make the process any easier. The process is still very labor intensive. And right. it's a lot of question answering. It's a lot of skepticism you have to respond to. And then you also get a fair amount of uh, what I call fearful negativity, where someone loves your idea, but they're fearful of buying into it, so they put you down. Because the idea is that if they can make it such that other people don't believe in your product or your game or your whatever it is or your whole idea, then they won't feel bad that they're not getting it because they don't. They feel like they were burnt out or they feel like uh, they just don't trust uh, the whole Kickstarter platform. So they'll just spread negativity so everyone, everyone just doesn't pay attention to it. And uh, that it's unfortunate. And I, I do hope that in six months, roughly, when we have the game in a very playable state, we're already heavily into alpha. Uh, I think that we can really change when people look at Kickstarter and also change the way that developers look at Kickstarter and, and, and make it so that people, developers, publishers, uh, everyone involved with Kickstarter, Kickstarter themselves shouldn't be advertising campaigns that don't have a clear window for delivery within a year for most right. products. And I think that uh, Kickstarter does a disservice. Also, I think that Someone made a great point. Is games often get overfunded on Kickstarter. I think that's, that's an excellent point. I mean, my internal goal when we started the campaign was 250000 in an ideal scenario. 25000 would be enough to justify the means uh, of the production of, of the campaign, get us some following, perhaps allow us to um, get to the next step in terms of development so we could open up a, another monetization model like a Patreon. But... The fact that we've reached 250, we're now in a very good place. Additional funding will allow us to meet more stretch goals and bring more content to the game. That's excellent. But I'm not going to sit here and say, like, oh, I wish we had a million dollars in funding. I don't. I don't want a million dollars in funding from Kickstarter because that means we'll probably have anywhere from 20 to 25,000 uh, backers. That means 25,000 emails, 25,000 packages, 25,000 uh, USB sticks. I don't want to make 25,000 USB sticks. I want to make 5,000 USB sticks and then move on and actually ship the game to people. So I, I think that the, the mindset gets very construed when people do Kickstarter. And they get very greedy and they start thinking, well, let me just get as much money as possible. Let's get as many advertisers involved as possible. Get as many people to buy in as possible. And then what that does is it exponentially increases how long it takes to complete the game. Because the more plushies you have to fulfill, the less time you spend working on the game. And we're very aware of that. We've even limited specific rewards. And as I look at the campaign today, we may even restrict some rewards even more just to keep our production in very streamlined sense. So we have, you know, a thousand early access, a uh, thousand early birds. We have 5,000 alpha testers, uh, you know, this and that. We're not trying to just make Kickstarter into a let's get as much money as possible because everyone knows, well, they should know, and we very much well know that if you can bring the game to market and sell a million copies in the first month, You'll be way better off than if you raise a million dollars on Kickstarter. Yeah, I think that's um, uh, that's definitely a great point, and it kind of leads me into the next question. Uh, with the industry taking notice of your success, specifically Stadia and GeForce Now, which you've disclosed that you've recently gotten into deals with. Um, do you think that there will be some bad actors that will take advantage of that model um, because 
Um, your game has mostly been funded by people on or in the Stadia community, um, correct? Or if I'm, or well, am I mistaken I would, in saying that? I wouldn't say that entirely, just to be safe. That it's because we have to wait till post campaign to look at the surveys. What I will say though is that from the our initial our 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 like internal community that we had built for years prior to Kickstarter and really the last couple of months before Kickstarter we really started promoting the game. Those four hundred people or so are what helped us get the first five or ten thousand dollars in the first couple of hours. From right. there, Stadia kind of picked it up, and from there to fifty thousand, everyone was saying Team Stadia, and we ran polls and we did see that seven out of seven hundred people, almost eight hundred people. 500 plus of them were Team Stadia. So there was a point in the campaign where it was easily 50 to 60% of the backers. Now, I can't say so for sure. We have to look at the numbers afterwards. But to your point, it's unfortunate, but I, I do think that we will see more developers come to the space now and follow in our footsteps uh, in a, not a greedy way, but in an advantageous way where they will say, we're bringing the game to Stadia, we're doing this and that, we want to do crowdfunding. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think the problem is more so about the, the structure. If a game, but now also, mind you, we, are, we were always using the correct version of the Unity engine to put our game on Stadia. We were always going to be targeting mobile, which is a very, very optimized platform, which also uses Vulkan, and meant that we would have to do a lot of the things you would need to get a game to run on Stadia, mobile right. because of those two things we always knew city was an option and even though we weren't accepted into the partnership program um it's we figured it'd be no different than switch or xbox where you wait a little while you prove the game's viable they give you acceptance so we found it very safe to say we were going to support stadia the support from the community was a bonus it was an after it was an after reaction so the bias will be new developers that come in will say look at the success let's mirror it and that's not always the case and in fact, it may go the other way where people say, oh, well, now every opportunistic developer is coming in promising Stadia. And the sad truth is that Google's not going to just bow down to every developer and say you're coming to Stadia. And right. in fact, when I met with Google, uh, one of their uh, business development representatives, Kirk, who we spoke with on Twitter, you guys saw he reached out to us. Thanks yep. to you guys. Uh, I was speaking with Kirk and he was saying it might not sound like much, but it's a pretty big deal just to be publishing on Stadia. Now, we're also looking to get into the Makers program, which we'll have news about very soon. But the, the underlying tone is that it's not that easy to get a game on a selective platform like the Switch or like Stadia, more so Stadia, because the Switch is pretty much taking any indie dev at this point. Um, so with Stadia, it's not a safe bet for developers to say we're coming to Stadia. I think that there has to be a very serious commitment from the team and also, uh, a from a technological standpoint, they basically have to be using Unity and the right version of Unity too. Right. Excellent, excellent point. Um, and I just wanna, um, or I just wanna um, ask one last question before we go because um, we're almost at time. But uh, Sky Climbers is coming to many platforms including cloud platforms like Google Stadia and NVIDIA GeForce Now. So what drew you to these cloud platforms when there are other developers, both big and small, that are ignoring cloud gaming 
um, Activision comes to mind here with Call of Duty and the expansive file sizes of of that game. So that's an excellent question. Tejas and I are very aggressive thinkers in terms of innovation. So if you look at the games industry, the next stage for innovation is going to be cloud gaming. Because what it does is it entirely decentralizes the entire gaming ecosystem. No longer do you even have consoles or platform exclusives. You have cross-play, cross-save across all games. And players stop viewing technology or they stop viewing games as console or platform specific. And they start viewing games as uh, medium specific. Like, is it a controller based game? Is it a VR game? Or is it a, uh, an interactive game like the Switch where you use the Joy-Cons? Those are really the fundamental differences in type of gaming. Or is it using the DualSense controller with the new haptic? Right. Those are really the unique parts of the gaming experience is how you interface with the game. But the game itself, all games are coming cross-platform and cross-play and cross-save. All the biggest games, Fortnite, blah, 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 you name it. They're all coming Minecraft. All the biggest names are on every platform. They're going to be on your smart fridge next. And to not adopt this trend is essentially saying, oh, well, I'm going to hope that eventually um, someday Microsoft acquires my company and we become a Microsoft exclusive. And that's like making it. Because 15 years ago, that was kind of making it. Bungie, you know, they worked really hard. They got Halo 1 through 3 out. They got acquired by Microsoft. They kind of made it. But in today's world, with self-publishing, with digital storefronts, with with cross-platform integration, there's nothing stopping an independent developer, publisher, with the correct product, and a large community who likes the product, to just do it all themselves. And to to bring it to every possible platform, monetize it five times worth what they would have on a single platform and uh, not be tied or owned by any publisher or domain or, or console. So I think that's why people and even influencers in the gaming space have such a negative take because they're getting paid by companies who thrive off of an archaic ecosystem, which prohibits people from playing specific types of games. It prohibits people from getting access to playing with their friends if they don't have the $500 console. And it prohibits new players from getting into the ecosystem. So overall, cloud gaming is better for everybody, except for the big greedy publishers. (laughs) Yeah, that's um, and that's where I'm going to leave it off at. Um, Like, uh, thank you so much, uh, Justin. I really appreciate it. Um, um, And if you want to go ahead and back the Kickstarter campaign for Sky Climbers. I will leave a link in the description or the show notes if you're listening to the audio version of this. And I will also leave links to interviews by the Nerf Report and the Gaming Advocate. I think those are both excellent interviews. Um, definitely more experienced people than I am in interviewing people. Oh, so, <laughs> so um, highly recommend that you check those out as well. But please, please, please go back to Kickstarter. Um, thank you so much, Justin, for joining me. And this has been the Cells and Circuits podcast, your place for tunes, tech, and where both intersect. We'll see you later.
Thanks for checking out the interview and massive thanks to Justin and Paratope for taking the time to talk about sky climbers. If you're listening to this before March 11th, there's still time to support the Kickstarter campaign, which will be linked in the show notes. While you're there, check out the other links that'll lead you to places like our social media, our newsletter, our coffee page, and our merch shop, which all help production keep rolling here on the Cells and Circuits podcast. And until next time, I'm Chibeze, signing off.